Electricast. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement, Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement. Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's a great pleasure I have the opportunity of introducing special guest, Dr. Kimya Nuru-Dennis, the founder of 365 Diversity. As an activist, sociologist, and criminologist, educator, and researcher, Dr. Dennis is invested in educating, training, evaluating, and assessing for-profit collectives and non-profit collectives alike. Dr. Dennis specializes in demographic and cultural identities and disparities shaping every aspect of K-12 schools and colleges, universities, medical and health organizations and facilities, family services, police policies and police presence, community services and workforce. This captures a range of issues, including recruitment and training methods for schools, businesses and organizations, teaching and learning design and implementation for schools, factors contributing to health conditions, access to health services and health outcomes, 
preventative measures and preventative resources to reduce reliance on formal, formal social control. Preventative measures and preventative resources to reduce reliance on formal social control, such as police, courts, jails, and prisons. This also reaches local, national, and international populations in collaborations with people with primary identities that are underserved, underrepresented, marginalized, and minoritized. Born and raised in the city of Richmond, Virginia, Dr. Dennis is a product of predominantly Black K-12 Richmond public schools and earned her bachelor's and master's in Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Dennis lived in North Carolina for 17 years in Raleigh for the doctorate and for a faculty position in Winston-Salem. Now living in the city of Baltimore, Dr. Dennis's work is local, national, and international. It's a great pleasure that I bring Dr. Dennis on the show. Dr. Dennis, welcome to the show. Thank you. And I also specialize in medical and health equity and Black suicide and Black mental illness. I, I appreciate everything that you do. And I want to ask you, in reference to your work and your career and everything that happened in the last several years, I want to ask you, what have you seen in the last year, at least, that would provide some promising insight that our society is capable of real change in the future? Nothing. And what can we do to change that? We, as in white people, well, white people have to first understand that this is 529 years of white power and white terrorism around the world, such that medical racism, scientific racism is one of the foundations of not only this stolen land from indigenous people, but raped and murdered indigenous people, stolen Africans who we call black people around the world, including the school systems that still exist, the medical and health systems. You know, as a criminologist, I created a crime academic program. So for nine years, I did recruitment for police. So some of my former students are police. And no matter how many black police we have, indigenous police, women police, LGBTQIA police, police are still created to control people. And the funds go to police instead of to schools, medical and health services, workforce development, job skills, and family services. That's intentional, racist, classist, sexist, city design, and city planning in every single city in the United States of America. And so when people say what has to change regarding that, it's intentionally designed this way. A lot of us don't think of that in modern society, but we should recognize the roots of that and how it was used in equity. That actually historically occurred. And like when you look at massacres that happen and the way that history was written to like cover it up also, and you know, at what point can we have a dialogue with those people? A dialogue? Um, we've actually had centuries of dialogue. Indigenous like you people, said, black. It's systemic. It's endemic. Okay. No, I, not anymore. Okay so <laughs> sometimes that happens with them. Okay, good. Because after you said systemic and endemic, it froze. All right. So one thing I do as a social yes. scientist is I always require students and community members when I do community work to stop using words like systemic, systematic, structural, institutional, as though that makes it now abstract. I always want people to know we're talking about people. So 
Because the problem is that when people say systemic, systematic, then they pretend, well, we don't know why this happened. We don't know how to stop it because those systemic aliens keep doing this. Like it's just aliens hovering over us, like alien, alien versus predator, right? So I always remind people, even when we're talking about bureaucratic red tape, when we're talking about human resources departments, it's still people. Literally, people are the ones making the guides. People are the politicians. People are the taxpayers. People are the voters. People are literally the ones who determine the racist city design that puts the liquor shops, the tobacco shops, the horrible food services, the black parts of the cities. People are the ones who intentionally put the millions of funds into police departments instead of schools. So when people say, when do we start talking about it? We have to say first, when people say we, they're talking about white people because indigenous people and black people have talked about this for centuries. So when we talk about history, it's not something in the past. It literally impacts every single day. It impacts what we eat today. When we talk about soul food, white people want to celebrate soul food. But when we talk about the origins of soul food, white people say, well, that's from the South. No, that's from enslavement of Africans. We were thrown the fat back. We were thrown the scrotum of the bull. We were thrown ham hock, hog moss, chitlins. We were thrown turkey necks. But these were foods that were thrown at us. So we had no choice but to eat it because we were stolen from our land. We were stolen from thousands of cultures and we were taken from agricultural land. We were taken from thousands of years of knowledge, sciences, mathematics, and we were forced into this space. And white people love to show photos of enslaved Africans and enslaved black people smiling, but we had to adjust. We can't walk around nonstop frowning because that wasn't ending slavery. That didn't end Jim Crow. That didn't end the racist school systems and racist medical and health systems that still exist in 2021. It doesn't matter how much Black people frown, we're still punished. It doesn't matter how much Black people smile, we're still punished. So whenever people say, when can we talk about this, we have to highlight who is the we here because Literally, I'm telling you this as a as an activist who works the nonprofit, who has a business, who also is a professor. The work that I do, it does not matter how I present the work. It's always based on what white people want at any given moment. And this includes white liberals, white progressives, white anti-fascists and white Democrats. When people say we, they're really talking about the people in power. So if we're talking about Gender identity, that's cisgender people, men and boys. When we're talking about sexuality, that's heterosexuals and sexual people as opposed to asexual. I want people to highlight who is the we here. It's not most of us because the underserved people have been talking about these inequities forever. And we've oftentimes gotten punished for talking about it out of turn and without using smiley language that makes the power majorities happy and comfortable. Interesting you say that because I respect exactly what you just said in the sense of, of being able to take off the lens of what how white, how white America might look at things and presenting a viewpoint that helps them to see a larger perspective, hopefully, right? The horrible things that, I, I mean, anyone should be ashamed or embarrassed to hear about it. And, and it, I, I know since George Floyd, for me, I had, I had awakening from it, like for myself, my own soul, soulful search. When I went to five protests and made my show, 
to want to have this kind of stuff talked about. I, I really want to have dialogue. I want to have awareness. And I know it's going to take uh, more than just one person, but I hope that someday we can, you know, change attitudes and change. And, and that's a, that's a point I want to say. When you said we represent the power majority, I understand what you're saying with that. So one of my other questions is, how do we share? How do we share power? How do we do it constructively? Do I know South Africa. Yeah. South Africa isn't a perfect system. Obviously, when they switched out of apartheid, they're still having a lot of systemic stuff themselves. But they at least are trying to work towards having a more representative democracy where our own country is restricting rights and causing a lot of what I'll call move, movements backwards and well, first of all, society right now for equality. So no, South Africa is not a role model because white people are still less than 10% of the population and still control South Africa. So no, South Africa is not a role model for this. White people still- I understand what South I'm trying to say when I represent, when I, when I referenced that, I was talking about it in terms of the fact you went out again. Work together and have dialogue with me today. Like when you have pivotal fickle no. figures like Mandela. And that's no, we don't need any after. more dialogue. No, black people need to stop doing the dialogue routine. South Africa is not an example of good dialogue because white people are experts at talking. That's the disguise that white people use for five centuries. They say, well, we talked about it. Nothing changes, but we talked about it. So South Africa, uh, white people control South Africa. My people are still murdered and imprisoned. That's the historical and current fact in 2021. So no, South Africa is not the model. And when we talk about sharing power, this is not about sharing power. White, the power does not belong to white people. This is stolen and abused power. I mean, so in terms of a societal effort of trying to rectify past wrongs and trying to have constructive dialogue to move forward in terms of yeah, there's no know, rectifying society past. in any country. There's no rectifying this for white people. Uh, when white people say rectify, they tend to mean that we will eventually forgive and forget and we'll remove it from all history books. We'll never teach about it again. We'll never do trainings about it again. So no, I'll, this I will never rectify this. As opposed as about the power dynamic, this is about stolen and abused power. So I don't believe in sharing power um, because when you say sharing, that's implying that the people who stole need to give it to us and it's not white people's power to hand out in the first place and again that's the same thing when we're talking about gender equity sexuality equity we're talking about able health and ableism and disability services this is not about power being shared this is about it's not their power in the first place therefore we're not taking power from them we're talking about ways to remove the decision makers from particular groups and identities of people. And, and so, and that's why I always tell people this is not just dialogue because when we present it as just dialogue, people expect it to be comfortable despite thousands of years of harms for certain identities and centuries for other identities, people still want dialogue to be comfortable. And it's impossible to have comfortable dialogue. And the proof of that is that adults specialize in comfortable dialogue that's based in lies. It's based in lies that they learned in K through 12, they learned in their college curriculum, they learned in doctoral programs, medical schools, and they've just been taught all of their lives through this, the social learning and social psych perspective. They've been taught all their lives to buy into falsehoods to pretend that this is dialogue when they learn something new, nothing changes, the decision makers don't change. 
And then people wonder why there's outrage and protest. Well, there's outrage and protest for thousands of years because humans specialize in acting. They specialize in saying, we're realizing something new, like this, the injustices have been hidden, apparently, and we're realizing something new. And the same thing happens in Canada. Canadians, white Canadians specifically, are experts at, a, at coming at Americans saying, oh, if only you all were like Canada. But again, remember the history of Canada, although they abolished slavery before the United States of America abolished slavery, they still had menstrual shows. They still have blackface. They still, till 2021, have medical racism, scientific racism. When people talk about change, we have to realize 99% of people are talking about change so they can learn how to hide injustices more. They're not trying to change the injustices. They're not trying to get rid of it. They think that they can tokenize us, put us at the forefront, and pretend the main funders and the main decision makers are not still the same people. Universities specialize in that. They'll say, we're bringing in more Black and Brown students, and we're supposed to pretend not to notice that the main board of trustees are still wealthy white people. It could be a historically Black college university. It could be an indigenous university. So this is why I tell people this is way more than dialogue, because we literally already have centuries of dialogue. Black social scientists have written about this for centuries. We've taught courses about this. We've protested, spoken out in faculty meetings, staff meetings. We've done community work. After a while, we tell people, if all you want to do is have a conversation, I'm going to the next person who's actually in power to change things. Not, and not just change it and be over with it, but I specialize in doing annual evaluations and assessments, similar to the accreditation process. So you said you changed something six months ago. Pretend I'm the accreditor. Prove to me, give me the demographic cultural data. That's not just test scores and grades and all that stuff that's really not meaningful at the end. And show me what's really improving beyond your ideas and theory. So that's where we're talking about getting beyond the dialogue and saying, how are you willing to sacrifice your career to make changes? But I had to tell white people over the years, no more behind the scenes appreciation. If you're silent when your voice really matters, when it's time to challenge other white people and your silence is excused because you claim you need to keep your job as though the rest of us are just independently wealthy, then that's another example of how white people for centuries, and this is particularly white women on this one, for centuries have been allowed to be considered allies who are helping us while still contributing to white power and white supremacy. So that's why I always challenge people to go beyond the dialogue stage. What are you really doing? Because if you're just uncomfortable in dialogue, then we're going to waste the rest of your yeah. life and you're comfortable to talk. And <laughs> you're never going right. to do anything beyond that. You'll right? never leave your comfort zone, right? You'll I mean, never leave it. Yeah, you have to leave accustomed. that. Yeah, you'll be accustomed to people hugging you. It's like, like adults operate with equity work like this is kindergarten. Right. Like It's like the playground all over again. Because they literally will spend their whole entire life, if they're part of the power majority identity, they will spend their entire life putting their toe in the sandbox and the other children are expected to say, Hey, come in the sandbox. You live your whole life that way. 
instead of jumping in the sandbox and saying, I'm going to inconvenience myself, be the only white person in the space, be the only man in the space, be the only heterosexual person in the space. And I'm not going to beg for attention. I'm not going to beg for a thank you. I'm not going to beg for cliff notes. Instead, I'm going to get accustomed to being ignored as I often ignore underserved people. And I'm going to force myself to learn and be in these spaces and to be unthanked and to not get an ally button and to do more than talk about it, do more than write a research article about it. All right. So that's the whole intensity of it that a lot of people don't want because they don't want to lose their friends, their jobs, their family. Many white people knew the white people who were at January 6th, the Capitol. They will pretend they don't. But I just tell people when white people do that terrorism, we need to stop pretending that these are a collective of white people who are somehow separated from other white people at their jobs and schools and families. You know, you're talking right now because the things you're saying to me, it resonates. And some of the stuff I, I, I haven't, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm having full, full, you know, reaction to what we're discussing. And it, it affects me. It makes me get upset. Right? And I know that's probably kind of do lip service to say that. Like, I'm genuinely emotionally upset right now to think that our, our, I feel like obviously we were lied to as a society growing up. Like I became a lawyer because I wanted to, you know, invest in the system. You, you know, you, you try to fairness, justice, equality and all that. And it, and, and it was my wake up call last year. And I know that sounds probably lip service too, but I'm being honest with you that when I marched, one of the things we had police presence and they were being pretty aggressive and I felt, and I always envied people from the 1960s because I was born in the 70s. So I didn't have a moment to be an activist or to do anything. But I know from my point of view that the emotional reaction I had seeing the police in front of us and thinking that they could hurt us at any minute, I felt like there's a purpose bigger than myself. And I felt that my life had meaning if I could help forward or advance a cause to change society, because that's how important. And that, that experience moved me. I look at things from a soul point of view, meaning from, from soul to soul, like I'm spiritual. And I look at us as all just made of spirit. And if you look at us as all made of spirit, then what we are outside, it, it should never be a basis of any kind of differences in that way. I, that's how I look at it in my mind is what I'm trying to say, or I try to think of it that way, that we're all made of the same thing. <laughs> you can't Well, here's, well, here's you know? something to think about, right? Because that's uh, based in hundreds of thousands of years of different forms of knowledge, arts, medicines, and health, including Asian, African, Indigenous, Aboriginal. But I always tell people that's also the foundation of white people, what sociologists call colorblind racism. So we can address us all being humans without pretending we're all the same. Like literally, we don't all have the same genetics, right? Yeah. We don't all have the same body type. We don't all have the same body features, which is also how white people created racial categories five, centu- five centuries ago for the purpose of white power and ownership, enslavement and stealing property, okay? Categories were created out of billions of people for hundreds of thousands of years. And now many of us have turned those categories into pride instead of ownership, like for me, Black power, Black pride, Pan-Africanism. So I always tell people we can address how all humans are equal without pretending that that's factual and outcome. Because we, again, yeah, we have thousands of years of inequities, 
Uh, we can talk about Dr. Charles Tilley, while he wrote about categorical inequalities, how humans have never been allowed to coexist. Even things like shoe size, humans have always ranked things, right? That's always been the case. So that's one thing that I tell young people also, because this is usually not the problem for black and brown children, unless they're surrounded by white people who force them to believe the whole we are all the same nonsense. It's usually white children who are taught this by white families, that we're all the same. These problems are just imaginary. We literally are all the same. And then we start talking about medical inequities. People act baffled. Like, how could there be medical inequities? Well, let's talk about let's talk about the foundation of medicine. Let's talk about the foundation of health. Let's talk about, again, genetics, eugenics, ethnic cleansing. These are all things that exist. So if we want to talk about from a spiritual realm, we also want to understand that the hundreds of thousands of cultures that have spiritual realms, which are every culture, despite white people making yeah. the most money from the Wiccan and incense. You know, when you go to most shops, it's mostly owned by white people, even though white people did not create all that stuff. But if you want to talk about that, we still have to say this doesn't mean we have to all pretend to be the same to coexist. Like, I don't have to pretend to not be a Black woman with natural hair and a disability for white people to not mistreat me. Because that's the age-old notion of white people saying, well, if you stopped telling me that you're Black and just pretended to be human, then I would stop abusing you. And that's 100% white people pretending that it's our fault. Like if you would stop being darker than me, if you would stop having a bigger nose, if you would stop using African-American vernacular, that's an extension. Stop being you. Like st- telling stop somebody to stop being themselves, right? That's not fair. And yeah. stop doing the things that are forced on us. African-American vernacular, Black English, Ebonics, that's because we're from thousands of languages and forced into Euro-white English. And that's also the origins of the languages in Jamaica, for example, and in Haitian French, you know, so like literally this is why I tell people we want to always talk about how history shapes now. And so I appreciate your work. And so it's going to be frustrating. I just want you to know it's going to be exhausting because it's going to be thankless. It's, it's exhausting. You will ask yourself sometimes, what am I sacrificing because white people in particular have been accustomed to being thanked for just existing. Cause you know, I mean, it's true. That's, that's where the whole yeah. ally button came in. Cause we were like, I never, I don't believe in a such thing as a power majority ally. So I don't believe in a such thing as white ally, but unfortunately many people do. And so the protests in the 1960s didn't end there. They, people like my parents extended the protests in the 1990s. Those, those black protests have never stopped. The ones that got the immediate attention were the 1960s because of Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. But the not famous Black people never stopped protesting and never stopped getting beaten and arrested by police. And so you just have to remember that this is long, but the real change does not happen at the protest. The real change is what white people do on board of directors, board of trustees, what they do in school, whether they're the student, the staff or the faculty what white people do when they are medical and health students or attorneys, law students, basically the same thing that black and brown people do when we're challenging the establishment everywhere we exist to the point where we can get kicked out of school, 
where we can get, you know, any kind of outcome, white people need to adopt that and stop pretending that they don't know how to do it because they've been spectators to how we've challenged every place we've been. Like when I'm in the hospital, I specialize in health, but I also have a disability. So I challenge the medical professionals, right? So this is literally something that we've learned to do because we had to learn that if you let the people in power, whether that's the attorney or the doctor, be the decision makers, you will be killed and you will just end up a data set. You will be a data set. That's how Black lives are considered everyone's data. Like people will literally watch us die and then it will become police data and then it will become FBI crime statistics data. So that's why Black people need to stop deferring. We need to stop stop being silent. We need to speak out everywhere, including to teachers when we know that we're being taught false information. My Black parents are both educators. They taught my brothers and me to to challenge. And the people who are mad that they're being challenged, they need to be mad at how they were brainwashed to believe falsehoods and convey falsehoods to every generation after them. It's been perpetuated for four or 500 years. Yeah. So like in undergrad, I was pre-law. I was going to go to law school. I was in file for Delta Med, you know, the the law fraternity. I was so excited. And then I worked at the law school dean's office. You were in PAD, Phi Alpha Delta? Yes. Yeah, I was yeah. in that too. I was just yeah. like, in charge of it. I was... <laughs> yeah, I was vice president. Okay. And I worked and I changed my mind and went into criminal justice because I actually worked at the law school dean's office. And that was during the OJ Simpson trial. And when those white women law school deans came in crying because he was acquitted, that's when I, cause I was, I was actually taking a practice LSAT and they came in crying and the huge racial division because black people figured he was not innocent, but we also wanted the legal system to not convict just on theory. We wanted the legal system to prove that they know the difference between you think someone's guilty versus you can prove they're guilty. The Beyond difference is it's a high burden. It has to exactly the difference between a criminal case and a civil case because he was convicted in a civil case because had different requirements. So black people in general, even though OJ Simpson had abandoned us a long time ago and started doing those stupid commercials, we really wanted one time in our lifetime where we could see an example of the legal system actually doing what they should be doing. And Johnny Cochran did a really good job. But seeing those white women law school deans coming and crying. Like this was the worst thing they've seen and they didn't understand the overarching racial component of it. Just let me, it was, to me, it was a warning sign. And the pre-law programs to me were already warning signs because they really didn't talk about racial variance, class variance, gender variance, the stuff that I teach about as a criminologist. So I always tell people there are plenty of warning signs everywhere in our life. So if you end up going into a part of your life, whether it's a field of expertise and pretend you didn't know about the racism when you took that very first class in undergrad, you're lying to yourself. You knew about it. You just thought that you could play the part. Maybe you thought you could change it, but you literally cannot change it unless you start changing it throughout your whole process. And you're right. So this and is something we all learn. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I after the Floyd, George Floyd thing, I started doing more social justice stuff for my show, just in my own way. And one of the things that was baffling to me is like, it's like taking the, you know, with the, with the matrix, 
you take off, mm-hmm. <laughs> you start seeing yeah. this other stuff. And yeah, I mean, just seeing like racism in the NFL races. I had a professor come on and he had written some articles, scholarly articles about how there's racism in the stadiums of where a college, you know, athletes play and, mm-hmm. and, and the namesake of those. And um, I mean, we were discussing that stuff has to change or even within the NFL power structure, when you have all the team owners owned by mostly white uh, individuals, mm-hmm. and then you have the coaching staff, like we were studying that he has some pretty interesting positions and it opened yeah. my eyes and it made me think as just one person would, but how it's really more, it, it's almost like the wolves over everyone's eyes in certain ways. And, Not and, everyone's remember. Well, for, I'm saying, remember, I'm saying about I'm the power majority. If you use the term power majority, <laughs> power majority, I'll say, okay. Most white okay. America, which by the way, I think white America is seeing the future is the fact is the census uh, recently showed that for the first time in the history of our country, the white, the white, you know, it's, it's shrinking. The white population in America is shrinking. It isn't really though. So this, so, so that, in, what's your in opinion this, on that? I guess I should ask you. All right. So there's two things. The first one for six years, I tutored black men, football players at two universities, one research one. And what I was doing is teaching them how to not <laughs> beg on going into NFL. Some of them went to the NFL, but I was preparing them for knowledge outside of playing sports and risking their life, concussions and all that. So thankfully, some became attorneys. Some are now teachers. I keep in touch with them. Um, But this is another example of how we have to challenge the establishment on our own. I don't follow rules and guidelines. So like when white controlled schools tell me these are the football players do this. I'm like, first and foremost, they are black boys and black men. I don't follow these schools guidelines that's designed to tell them to only know bare minimum and then throw pigskin for white people. I don't do that. And this is also where I hold other faculty and staff accountable, because if you're proud that you follow the rules to keep your job, then you are part of the problem and you are part of the oppressor. You're contributing to it. Your outrage is theoretical because in real life, you are literally doing everything that you already know is harm your job. So that's just rule number one. The next part is, I just missed the next part. What was Sorry. The next one you want, that was my, my NFL spiel. Okay. Um, I think we're talking about namesakes of the stadiums and how they're based on racist past. I mean, it's how hard is yeah. it to change a name? I don't understand. I mean, Obviously, there's resistance. I'm telling you, from my point of view, change the name, update it. Yeah, so so that's change the name. So, of course, I'm from Richmond, Virginia, so that's the whole Richmond Mm. Brave thing. So that's a problem. It's intentionally designed that way. But what you actually were uh, talking about is the population change. And so it's very common when people talk about population changes that they want me to believe this prospective data. It's not real data. It's prospective, Right prospective in 2025. And I tell people, first of all, we have to remember that white racial category is based on various ethnicities, religions, nations of origin, cultures around the world. Right? You're right. Well, melting pot. I mean, a a lot of... Well, it's not a melting pot. It's more so a putting people together controlled by white people. And we can talk about that in terms of Dr. Noel Ignati Eves, how the Irish became white, because where he talks about how people from Ireland, they had forms of enslavement over there, right? But then eventually they became intentionally assimilated into whiteness. 
So most Irish will call themselves Irish Americans when they want to highlight their ethnicity and Catholic background, but most often will say white when they want to make sure that they are as white as possible. Same thing happens when we're talking to, to white Jews, because a lot of times white Jews will say, well, we're all Jewish. No, there's black and brown Jews, there's white Jews, Ethiopian Jews, East Indian Jews. So it's, it's not the same. We're talking about racial categorization. When people claim that white people will eventually become the population size minority, that's an unfounded claim, number one, because again, there are white people who are indigenous in terms of background. There are white people who are Hispanic, who are Latin, Latinx, Latine, Latino. Therefore, they will check white on a future census, okay? So I always tell people, you're not psychic for real, for real. That is prospective data. It's not based on racial categorization. It's more so based on collecting ethnicities and cultures without any kind of understanding of how people racially choose to identify in 15, 10 years. But it's also a scare tactic for white people. So this goes to the whole perspective. It's the racial threat hypothesis. And there's been a lot of research, most research done with racial threat hypothesis done by white sociologists, white criminologists, white people with a legal background, mostly white people. The idea here is to refute the claim that when white people feel threatened in terms of being reduced in power and presence, that that's when hate crimes and racial hate crimes increase. So just want to remind people that racial hate crimes are the most prevalent hate crimes and white people are the majority of the offenders. So that's always been the case. Racial hate crimes, all hate crimes, increase when there are perceived population shifts and when there are perceived socio-political shifts and economic shifts. The idea there is that the power majority perceives threat to their power and presence. Therefore, they're going to harm people. Sometimes they'll harm their own people. The idea is expressing outward aggression and anger, but they most often... Anyway, they so most often will try to hurt the underserved people. So that happens. We're talking about Jewish synagogues being harmed, usually by white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, usually white men. The same thing we're talking about uh, crimes against black people. We have research that talks about how most hate crimes against black people have not been solved. Oftentimes people assume that it's black on black crime. First of all, all groups of people are more likely to abuse their own people. So it's not just black people. So, so that's just one thing I wanna highlight when we're talking about changes in population. Those changes in population data are also used by white people as a scare tactic to tell each other to reproduce more, have more white babies, right? That's also been used by white politicians to say we need to have more government incentives for middle class people to have babies with an understanding that middle class in America are proportionally white. So they won't say white. That's the whole colorblind racism part, right? They will say, I never said white. I never said black. Not saying these racial categorizations does not change the intent as well as the outcome. Because they know that white people are more than 60% of the U.S. population and they're more than 80% in, in Canada. And so, like, literally, white people who are adamant about being the power majority 
really do not want to be the population size minority, right? Like you can look at Jamaica, South Africa, parts of the world. White people are about 11% of the world population. But white people control the world in terms of what's in libraries, what's taught and learned in schools, including PhD programs, MD programs, JD, right? Right about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, white people are considered the most powerful, wealthy nations. And we can look at China and Japan in competition with that, but it's still very Euro white structure because in Japan and China, the higher ranking people are more likely to get facelifts where they get the surgery to remove any eye slants. Skin lightening, bleaching happens very prevalent in Asian nations, Black nations, Jamaica, parts of continent Africa. So when we're talking about population changes, we really want to dissect if that really means what people think it means. Like People are really pretending that having more black and brown people will suddenly change the government and suddenly change schools. That's not how the world works. That's not how USA and Canada work. It's not how the medical system, that's not how the legal system works. Like these laws, policies, procedures everywhere are not gonna crumble just because more black and brown people exist. Look at, I didn't mean, I was going to say, look at this whole thing with Derek Chauvin, the trial, yeah. right? I want to, I want to get your opinion on that. Cause I, I, I have my own, but I, I'd be curious cause you have a very unique point of view and I'd love to hear what you think could have been done better about it. Um, I know that they're saying that it's, it's, while it's a step, it's not anything near what it should be, obviously. And in terms of accountability, you, you can't give somebody a discount cause they're behind a badge when they were brutal and killed somebody. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't support police. Um, again, I'm a criminologist who has done recruitment with police. And I believe, and this is what I say everywhere, I want 95% of police funds removed and put into schools, medical and health services, workforce development, put into economic changes, put into the family services, put into environmental changes so that we can reduce litter, not by arresting people every time they throw something, but literally talking about how we need to protect the stolen land. That Again, it's stolen land in which African Black people were forced to build on the land. So these wealthy universities, these wealthy medical centers built on stolen land, a lot of them that are from the 18th century, they will marvel over the white men who they say built the land, but it really oftentimes was built by black people, particularly black men. White House. The White House the was White built House. Up. Well, also the universities that I will not name. Yeah. When you look at the cobblestone roads, the cobblestone roads are were not like yes, there were some poor working class white people who did that, but they were not enslaved. Like indentured servants were not enslaved. It's not the same thing, right? And so Derek Chauvin is just one of 529 years of white terrorists. Police have too much power. No matter where you go, police have too much power. So even polite police have too much power. The politeness, whether that's police having basketball tournaments, having cookouts in black communities. We have to remember that's funding that's coming from our taxes. 
I don't need to pay the police to have a cookout. That's our money. We can have our own cookouts, right? So Derek Chauvin being tried and convicted, that is, it happened. I don't celebrate that so much because the intent when things like that happen is that's usually Black people are now told, okay, problem solved, shut up about it now. And that's literally centuries of the routine that's done to all underserved people, but particularly in this case, the Black people. We're told Derek Chauvin was tried and convicted. You all can stop protesting. First of all, because most people do not know that Black Lives Mattering is not just an organization. We have protested for our lives for centuries. We've taught about our lives for centuries. We've addressed police brutality police murder, every Black person, including myself, has at least one family member who has been beaten by police. Every Black person. So when people tell us, well, Derek Chauvin was convicted, so you all can stop being mad. First of all, they don't control our emotions. They don't control our voice. They don't control how we use it either, right? So that's another tactic. And that happens with white politicians. It happens with the president of the United States, no matter who the president is, but Biden in this instance, where literally they, they pretend not to understand the meaning of white power. White power and white control includes when the quote unquote good white people think that they are in charge of our voice and they think that we should not speak unless spoken to. Yeah. like. So, mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to tell you. <laughs> When I did, I'm just a small part of the bigger focus, but when I did for my position, when we did the protest and, and someone was actually struck by a car, uh, a local activist, and it horrified me. And then you have the governor of the state of Florida enacting legislation to make it so that if you go to protest social justice stuff, you can get hit by a car and not be prosecuted. The person that does it. Right. And horrendous. it's, it's a great, I mean, when you're talking about power, power majorities and you're talking Mm -hmm. about desperation in my opinion that's a sign of desperation it is and that's it's another example of colorblind racism as well right because they know based on what they've seen and on collected data we have protest data they know which demographics are more represented in protests when you go to black lives matter protests again which are not just based on the black lives matter organization we've protested for centuries you know it's going to be mostly black people there And you know it's going to be non-Black people who defend Black people. So you're saying our lives don't matter, right? That's like when you're going to a gay pride parade or an LGBTQIA parade. This includes when they're Black and Brown pride parades. You know the demographics represented in there. So if you pass legislation that says if you run into a transgender pride parade, you cannot be prosecuted prosecuted, you know that you're specifically doing something that is intentionally cisgender-centric, transphobic, heterocentric, and homophobic. You're not going to put those words into it because you don't want to be socially and legally held accountable for endorsing hate crime, but you know who's represented in the people in the parade and the marches and the protests, and you know the people who are more likely to run into it are cisgender, heterosexual, transphobic, homophobic people. So you know who you're protecting and you know who you're abusing. So this is why I go back to what we talked about earlier when we talk about discussions, right? When we talk about discussions, we have to understand that discussions 
do not have to be specific when people think that they're hiding facts by not mentioning certain titles and names. They do that because they've been taught all their lives that if you don't say it, that means it doesn't exist. Right. They've learned since childhood. Like out of state, out of mind. They try to pretend it's not real. Exactly. Out of state, out of mind. I didn't say that. Therefore, it can't be fact. So that's why I tell people when we're talking about equity, it's the work is regardless of what people say, because we know the hidden tone and language. But I also want people to know that the work you're doing is only in your lifetime. Never put pressure on yourself to pretend you're going to change everything in your lifetime. You do your part while you're here because inequities, injustices and disparities are going to exist as long as humans exist. They've existed since the creation of humans hundreds of thousands of years ago, and they're going to exist until we're exterminated whenever that happens. Right. So I, I don't want anyone to think that in their lifetime they can get rid of racism. They can get rid of sexism. They can get rid of ableism. You're doing your part. And I say this every time because white people, when they stalk us and harass us anonymously, one common sentiment that white people believe in emails and voicemails is, well, I was definitely going to be an ally, but I've changed my mind because you are so ungrateful to white people. To me, that's very funny. Um, That's a centuries of routine to get us to apologize and beg white people for presence. But I also find it amusing because, again, If you need to be thanked, then that means you're not doing this to help other people. You're really doing it to get your own cape so that you can be a superhero and put this on your resume, you know? And and that's the foundation of, unfortunately, most DEI offices and DEI work. It's really founded in savior process, like white savior, men as saviors for women, and and the list goes on. And therefore, that's when you go to the trainings and so forth. The trainings are very much designed to make sure white people are not offended if we're talking about race. Make sure heterosexuals are not offended if we're talking about, you know, gay pride, lesbians, if we're talking about bisexuals. Make sure those heterosexuals are comfortable. Though. I mean, offended. Like you say that word and I laugh because I'm thinking to myself, you're basically saying you can't exist. You offend me. We got to present it in a way. Yes. You know, like it's, it's yeah. Well, that's why I challenged you when you said share power, right? Because share power is when people say share power and we're talking about power majorities, when they say share power, they are usually saying it within the context of it's still going to be ours, but we will give you some of this. Again, back to that playground Mm -hmm. in kindergarten. This is my Skittles. I will give you a few Skittles, but just remember I'm the one with the whole bag. So if I change my mind, I will keep this bag to myself and I might even step on the spittles I gave to you. That's what shared power means. You're not reducing the stolen power that you have as power majority. You're saying, I'm going to give some to you. That's the whole origins of academia as well. When academia claims that they're going to be more inclusive, what they'll do is have more special topics courses. They will have more committees. They'll do more trainings, but they're not changing the crux of it. They're not changing the accreditation process. They're not changing. Yeah. So me as faculty, when I was in charge of the academic program, I changed our department, changed our own accreditation process. I tell people, if you really want inclusion equity, you don't have to wait for accreditation agencies, deans and presidents and board of trustees to give you permission. I don't need anyone's permission. 
It would take yeah. 30 years in that hierarchical structure. Because of- I don't want, yeah, like I don't need anyone's permission for inclusion. If I want to change this department and change the materials used and make sure that all materials are not from white men, cisgender, heterosexual, able health people, that's what I'm going to do. I don't have to pass it through anyone for their signature. Why? Because even if you don't sign it, I'm still going to do it. Because one thing I'm not, I'm not a hypocrite. I don't believe in theoretical justice. I'm not going to say, I would love to do this. What do you think? I truly don't care what most people think because I'm going to do it regardless. Because my whole purpose is to make these changes in my lifetime. I never, I don't believe in a wait list. I don't believe in being patient for permission. I don't believe in any of that stuff. And I'm not the only person who operates this way. Thankfully, I have collaborators around the world who believe in making changes. And we tell people, whether it's academia or any place else, medical and health systems, we tell people, you can be offended and disagree with what I did, but here's what I did anyway. You know, I I've already I, done it. <laughs> so this during our conversation today, I've learned a lot in terms of perspective for myself, right? And mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And it's like I think anyone in our audience who gets offended by anything we're discussing, they need to they need to recheck their position on things because <laughs> you need to, you need to, you need to get outside of your comfort zone, like you said. The best way that you will literally be able to contribute to a meaningful change in certain things is to to be able to actually expand, you know, and, and that is painful. Sometimes it's painful to hear things or, you know, but it, it, you got to, you've got to, everyone needs a voice and, and you've got to yeah. hear because things have been whitewashed for 500 years. And they've been whitewashed. They've been, I mean, all sorts of washed for power majorities. Right. Exactly. And yeah. inequities are uncomfortable. Like universities that said they wanted more black students years later, they're realizing that black students are more likely to need financial aid and to not be able to pay tuition and to not be able to donate to the school after they graduate. But guess who's more likely to be able to do all that? White students. So therefore, a lot of these schools have changed their equity policies as well. And they said they're for financial reasons that they've had to make those changes. So I keep telling people, there's so many warning signs. So you have to, if you're talking about equity and reaching underserved groups and minoritized groups, you have to have protective factors and safety nets and realize that this might change your economic foundation. So let's prepare for that and not use money as an excuse to reverse the inclusion work that you claimed that you were invested in. So this is, it's complex. It's uncomfortable. People will be offended. I tell people I don't stop based on offense. It's important. Mm -hmm. It's important because we have to have to, we, you have to, I just, I don't, I don't want I don't know what other words to describe it. I, yeah. I, the conversation with you this morning is so important for me because I hope people, I hope people get offended at first. I hope when they first hear this, they'll get offended. You know why? Because they need to, <laughs> they need to, to, to really recognize that this stuff is, if you're going to really challenge it, you really have to challenge it. That means ripping off the band-aids. That means really accepting that you're going to hear things. You're going to be like, oh, wow, what? <laughs> I'm sure I had a deer in headlights look a couple of times on the video as you're telling me some stuff, only because it's something that from my perspective, I am an, I, I want to be an open sponge. And I don't say that in, in any derogatory way. I want to really learn as much as I can about these issues. And I'm going to say something. Last year, when I was trying to get people to come to my show to talk about this topic, <laughs> I had a hard time finding anybody. I would reach out to people who had it, you know, before I was on 
on a pod match with you. Like I, I did not get people responding to me. I had a couple, I had Dr. Ginger Charles. She, she's a professor and she wrote a book about um, the police and, and everything and, and change that can be made. And then I had this awesome other professor. Um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank at the moment. My point That's is, right. I, I love the fact that you're existing right now as a, as a, as a catalyst, as a mouthpiece to, to share this point of view, because it's not, it's not something you see in mainstream media too, too frequently. I mean, you don't see that, you know what I mean? You really need to account for point of view and how else are you going to start really getting people to really look at things unless they're uncomfortable at first. Yeah. And I appreciate you because you're going to keep doing this work. You, like I said, you're going to realize you're not going to make all these changes in your lifetime, but what you need to do is make changes to policies and practices so that people who come after you can pull from that. Because as you know, a lot of people who do equity work, their work gets intentionally lost, right? It happens at schools, police departments, medical and health facilities. The people who try to do equity work, it ends up in the basement. It ends up in somebody's bookshelf with a bunch of stink bugs. This stuff is intentionally lost because it's intentionally designed that every few years, people say, how do we make changes? Because they intentionally pretend they have not been told this before. Exactly. That's how, sure. that's how inequity persists, because they pretend they've never heard this before. I did not know about this book. I did not know about this training, despite the people who came before them intentionally leaving behind the groundwork. So I always want people to know that that's what's happening. So I appreciate you, Jason. And you know how to find me so we can keep in touch. Like, and- I'll say this to you, two things. First off, I'm going to have your information on our show notes, but I still like to have yes. you tell our audience where they can find you because how, it's important because some people listen and they don't look at the notes. So can oh, you- How dare you people not looking at notes? <laughs> <laughs> our audience how we can find you. Yeah, well, first, thank you so much. Again, you all need to support Jason's work. It's really <laughs> important work. So, And this includes donations, right? Because people can donate to the work, which also encourages you to do, to keep your protests, but also to join more meetings, right? Absolutely. And this is not just school board meetings. I, I keep telling white people, y'all yelling in school board meetings. I promise you, when they leave, much you're yelling. It doesn't matter how much you share it on Twitter for popularity. There's <laughs> other stuff that needs to be done, right? So everyone can find me at 365diversity.com. That's 365, the numbers 365, diversity, D-I-V-E-R-S-I-T-Y.com. And on there at the top, they will see my business number and my email address. You'll see a list of my services. You will see a bunch of photos of community work I've done over the years because I'm first and foremost an activist and a sociologist and criminologist. (laughs) And you will also see a long list of the podcasts I've done, not all of them, but a lot of them. And eventually the social psychic will eventually be on there as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll say this. I have to really thank you. I mean, to, to be passionate and share your, your, your mission. And, and to me, it's important. I, I appreciate you coming on the show. I, I really do. And I'm excited about working with you, uh, continuing our, 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 I won't call it conversation or dialogue. I'll just say continuing to expose reality for most of the audience will probably be like, what? <laughs> but I'm saying I, I look forward to expanding minds. I, I mean, I know it sounds simplistic, but I, I like whatever words I can use to attach to the meaning of what we're doing. I, I find the growth that we're doing here. And yes, part of it was uncomfortable in the sense of having to think back to think, wow, you know, and, and the most frustrating part of it for me is yes, I want immediate change, right? That's how, that's how most of us feel when they think of these things, even with our own, our own raised, you know, our own point of view and everything. But I think having you at least here as a starting point for me, 
and our audience, it's, it's going to be one part, but we have to get vigilant. We've no. got to stay consistent and we've got to be persistent. And I think what you're saying is opening eyes one person at a time, in my opinion. I appreciate you coming on and, and really helping to express viewpoints that are very important to be heard and, and shared. Thank you. We keep these discussions going and we tell people, all right, we've talked enough. Now, what are you actually doing besides <laughs> smiling at people? Like, what are you doing? And that's always the step that we take people to. I appreciate it. <laughs> so, Thank you, Jason. I just want to thank Dr. Dennis for coming on the show and really giving our audience an opportunity to look at things critically. I'm at a loss for words, I'll be honest with you, because when you have these conversations, it, it, you know, it has to affect you if you care. It has to. And when you think of systemic injustices and it, it goes to the core of 500 years, it takes a lot to really digest. And trust me, it's, gonna, it's not going to be something that you can digest in one sitting. This is something that's going to require an effort on all our parts. And that's what I want to do is give each of us an opportunity to challenge even if you're listening to this, whenever I air this in a few days, you're going to hear this. And at that moment in time, whatever you're doing with your life, stop for a second, pause, think to yourself, don't just pass what we're listening to. Don't fast forward it. Don't pause it and come back to it later. Cause you maybe never will actually listen, engage this information, absorb it. And I don't expect you to even have an understanding of it right away. Cause I'm still learning. And, and I've, I'll say it takes a lot, but we all have our own parts to do. So check out this episode. I'm excited to have it featured in our show. Stay positive. Look critically at everything. Have a critical point of view. You have to. And take action in your own way. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win! Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. 
Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric acid. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on ElectroCast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. ElectroCast. Electric acid.